0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall podcast. My name is Christian. My name's Aaron, uh, and we've got a really exciting uh, we've got a really exciting episode for you this week. Yeah,
1: and if you're listening to this, that means you have survived the spring semester here at Georgetown. So congratulations! Woo, you made it. You only have one more day of classes, uh, presumably tomorrow, unless you are lucky and have no Monday classes or have everything canceled. Uh, and then we're going into exam time.
0: Good for you guys. Uh, We've got a really awesome guest this week. Uh, Professor E.J. Dionne has been our religion and American politics professor all semester. And uh, we're really excited to have a conversation with him about the intersection of the two.
1: Yeah, it should be fascinating. And uh, real quick, we just want to plug our social media again uh, because we love hearing from you guys. So at Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, uh, Pick one, do them all, whatever. We just want to hear from you. We want to interact with our audience, so do that.
0: Check it out. We're getting funnier every day. We really
1: are. <laughs> that's a shout-out to Kendall Silwanek for doing that. You know, We can objectively say that our Twitter account is hilarious because we're not pumping out the content. Yep, it's totally Kendall, so I swear you'll enjoy it. So, uh,
0: so we're going to do a couple of quick things before we get into our conversation with Professor Dion. Uh, the first is our one-minute spotlight on something that's really interesting going on in the news right now. Um, And outside of all the chaos that's going on in the House, uh, we thought we'd talk a little bit about NAFTA. Uh, So the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, as you all know when you studied it in AP U.S. history, um, is basically a free trade agreement between the United States, Canada, and Mexico uh, that, you know, President Trump, who as candidate Trump, talked about how he was going to either renegotiate or pull out of Um, As one of his campaign promises. Um, And he's looking like he's gonna go forward with that. Uh, He basically drafted an executive order that said that they were going to pull out of uh, NAFTA, at which point a bunch of people freaked out. And uh, he fielded calls from both uh, the Prime Minister of Canada and the President of Mexico and was like, well, maybe we're not going to pull out. We'll just renegotiate. Like within an hour. Yeah, it was it was a quick turnaround there. <laughs> it was
1: still a little sloppy. Um,
0: yeah. And so basically NAFTA is up in the air. NAFTA is a big question mark. And we're going to look at look at that over the next couple of months to see what's going on there. You
1: know, I didn't actually learn about NAFTA in my APUS history class. I actually learned about it in business principles honors, BPH. What a great class.
0: Thanks. Anyway, anyway
1: mm-hmm. uh, we just want to shine a spotlight ahead and something interesting that might be happening next week. Uh, as many of you... Probably remember, uh, there's a little bit of controversy about a certain speaker who came uh, to visit <laughs> Georgetown a couple weeks ago or last week. Uh, I'm losing reference of time. So, the SFS invited Sebastian Gorka, a Trump administration official, here to speak uh, about was it was a free free press or yeah, it was, it journalism or something like fake that. Fake
0: news was somewhere in the title.
1: Yeah, and, and he had sort of a bad week uh, or a bad time here at Georgetown uh, because.
0: <laughs> Yeah, he, and a bad week. And a bad
1: week. But uh, he, he fielded some tough questions. A good friend of ours, Roe Haydar, uh, pelted in with some really uh, yeah. hard-hitting questions.
0: The the questions revolved around whether or not he was tied to a Hungarian Nazi group, yeah. um, which is always sketchy because no one really calls themselves Nazis anymore, um, obviously. Um, so it was really a conversation of, you know, what was... What was he doing with the Hungarian Nazi group? Um, And he got a lot of tough questions from Georgetown students, at which point he stormed out of the panel.
1: Well, not to mention the protesters that were surrounding uh, the event as well. Very peaceful protests, great student activists. Even the administration uh, commended them on how they exercised their right to free speech uh, to protest uh, some of the, the affiliations of Sebastian Gorsuch. Uh, g- wow! I just said Gorsuch, didn't yeah. I? <laughs> well, check he- out our Supreme Court <laughs> episode of Week Three. <laughs> anyway, uh, and now what we're hearing we read in playbook uh, just today or or a couple days ago that uh, Gorka is actually under fire now in the administration for some of his uh, some of his uh, sketchy ties. So he might be out in the White House as well. Uh, and we'd like to think that Georgetown played a little bit of a uh, played a bit of a role in that, and shining a spotlight on that controversy.
0: I'd like to think so. Uh, So, we're going to do something a little different this week. We normally do a Tweet of the Week, but the good news is that we write the rules here, so we're (laughs) kind of allowed to do whatever we want. Um, And we're switching it up to talk about our Instagram of the Week. Um, Our Instagram of the Week comes from at Jason in the house, um, who, if you do not know, is representative jason chaffetz you
1: just know he got that from you guys remember cory in the house like on disney <laughs> channel when uh when kyle massey up and left uh raven he left somewhere. raven
0: dude right? i was so mad who leaves his sister oh just my go god slow.
1: she like definitely was not in college at that point no uh, they just up and like became uh, his dad became a chef in the white house yeah, and pretty cool job it Was cory in the house
0: yeah cory in the house great show. check it out on uh disney
1: channel. not to be confused with jason in the house right
0: who is definitely congressman jason chaffetz is uh Instagram account. And
1: he's not in the White House. He's in the House of Representatives. Just very clear distinction there.
0: Um, Maybe he wants to be. I don't know. Mm. Um, (laughs) So uh, Representative Chaffetz is probably one of the uh, most powerful uh, congressmen in the House. He chairs the uh, House Oversight Committee. And uh, interesting side note is that he said he's not going to run for re-election in 2018 and may not even finish his term. So there's a lot of controversy going on there with uh, Republicans, you know, basically Uh, Clamoring to try to take his job because he has such a powerful position. Um, But interestingly enough, he Instagrammed a photo, which I didn't really even know representatives had an Instagram. It's kind of weird for me.
1: Well, the photo too, it's like a pick stitch. Yeah,
0: it clearly was done by some intern. There's no way. Um, It was a pick stitch of basically multiple photos of like his x-ray of his foot with like a ton of hardware in there. There were like 14 screws. Mm. It was crazy. And... He's apparently been walking around on this for 14 years. 12 like, years? 12 years? Yeah, 12 he's years. Been... He had, like, shattered his foot or something. And basically, what he has said is... 12, now it's a problem. Yeah, so now it's an issue. <laughs> 12 that, years later. Uh, he's going to need emergency surgery on. So he's going to be out of the house for the next perceivable month. He's going to be at Jason in the hospital. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. Right? Um, so, you know, big big question marks there on... Uh, You know, whether his vote is really going to matter, whether his voice is really going to matter in so much chaos that's going on in the House right now, it seems like Republicans are really going to need his vote. It's also just a really good reminder that, you know, representatives, congressmen, senators, they're all people who have problems outside of their immediate jobs and whatever headline was written about them. Um, And, you know, a good reminder that we're all just humans on this earth.
1: It's so sweet.
0: So deep. I get that a lot.
1: Speaking of deep, let's go deeper. So today's conversation is about religion in politics. Uh, And this is a touchy subject for people. I know uh, a lot of people say the two things you don't discuss at the dinner table are religion and politics. Uh, But that's, you know, what we came to Georgetown to do uh, in part. Yeah, uh, in part. And taking EJ's class this semester has been so illuminating on how religion informs uh, political views and, and vice versa, too, how politics can actually inform interpretations of religion. And I think just considering the political implications of uh, religious principles and religious opinions and religious beliefs. Uh, it's just so interesting to see, you know, how how it plays a role in our public life.
0: Yeah, it's a really fascinating conversation that we've had all semester, and we're really excited to bring, you know, some snippets of that conversation to you guys, because uh, we really love the subject, and Aaron and I love, you know, debating about the role of religion in politics, um, and we're really excited that you guys get to hear some of that. And we're
1: super lucky to have an expert guest. I can't, we can't emphasize enough how smart this
0: man is yeah professor dion is one of those people that you could just sit down and ask him one question and he could talk for the next five hours about it because he knows the answer to everything now, Like if it's you, yeah. actually shocking
1: and if you don't believe this anecdotal evidence we have hard evidence to summa <laughs> cum laude at harvard rhodes scholar the guy's brilliant if a fellow a senior fellow at brookings like the guy is uh an, uh, an academic off the charts
0: yeah and he's probably most famous uh for his Washington Post column that he's had for an incredibly long time, and you can tell by all of the moms that come into our class all <laughs> semester of students who just love his writing. Uh, if you guys haven't seen it, check it out. You know, he's got an amazing column. Sometimes he talks about politics. Sometimes he just talks about life, Yeah. Um, and he really just, it's, he's one of those people that, again, like, he can, you can just listen for hours to him, and you would learn so much. He's an incredibly fascinating human. We're really excited to have him as a professor all semester, and we're really excited to have him as a podcast.
1: On that note, let's go bring him in. Everyone, this is EJ Dion, Professor EJ
0: Dion. <laughs> professor Dion, welcome. Welcome to our. It's podcast. great to be with you. This is so exciting. Uh, we wanted you on this podcast pretty much since the inception of this podcast. So we well, appreciate that. I'm
2: so po- uh, so pleased you guys are doing this for geopolitics.
1: Politics. <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and I know we've had a great time in, with you in class. So I guess sort of the the mission of this particular episode is to take what we've been discussing in our circles, right, the li- religion and politics intersection, and sort of blast that out to the the greater political community in Georgetown student body because. We think it's a very important conversation to have that just isn't getting us talked about outside of, you know, the scholars who are engaging in this sort of dialogue.
2: No, and I think there's often a lot of reluctance to talk about it. The old line that the two things you don't talk about at dinner Mm. are politics or religion. (laughs) And I think I may have said this at the beginning of class. One of the reasons I teach this class, I think, is because I grew up in a family where we talked about politics and religion all the time. (laughs) Uh, at the uh, dinner table, and I, um, you know, I'm broadly on the progressive side of politics, and I think there's a particular reluctance over the last twenty to thirty years on the progressive side to really engage this issue, because I think religion, partly because of the rise of the religious right, partly because of the controversy over gay rights and gay marriage. Um, partly because of the abortion issue although as we've talked about in class I think that's more complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a general sense that religion is associated with the right end of politics with conservative or or right-wing politics and in fact uh, throughout our history uh, religion has been associated in very important ways with some of the most important progressive movements in our history from uh, abolition to civil rights uh, from the progressive movement to the labor movement um, and that you know if people feel strongly about their uh, religious commitments um, <clears throat> it's inevitable that they those religious commitments have something to do uh, with their politics you can't take mm-hmm. one seriously without taking the other seriously
1: right and that's sort of what we want to dive into and you segue perfectly for us uh, with you particularly. So just walk us through your early life. You said at the dinner table, you love talking about religion and politics. So was that sort of the birthplace of this particular field that you decided to explore for the rest of your life? Just walk us through how your experiences have informed this career path.
2: Right, well, I think we're all shaped by our parents and our communities um, in some deep way. Um, Sometimes we rebel, sometimes we don't, (laughs) sometimes we partly disagree. But they, they have a huge role in our lives. It's one of the reasons, as you know, at the beginning of class, I always like to know where everybody comes from and why they are taking right. this class. Because particularly in this area, I think biography has a lot to do with people's interests. And uh, as you guys know, um, I've discovered over the years that a rather high, relatively high percentage of the people in the religion and politics classes over the years have come from religiously mixed marriages. Mm-hmm. And so there are people who've been grappling with this themselves. That's in, me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in, in my case, I grew up in an old um, factory town in Massachusetts called Fall River. Um, it's a town that's about 85%, or it was when I was growing up, about 85% Catholic. It's mostly a white ethnic Catholic town where the church, the labor movement, Um, and the Democratic Party, even though I grew up in a Republican family, but it was a very Democratic town, and Mm -hmm. people really thought a lot about all three. Um, And, you know, I was eight years old when John F. Kennedy ran for president, and obviously that was a high point of people talking about this topic. Could a Catholic get elected president uh, of the United States? And then I saw in my parents, uh, you know, a, a, um, a real connection between what they did in their lives and uh, their uh, religious faith they were both catholic um, my dad uh, was a dentist who in the 30s started a free dental clinic for poor kids hmm. uh, in town you got a lot of the dentists in town to give a day a month or a day every six weeks just so poor kids could get to go see a dentist and you know he didn't think sort of um in some complicated way about this but it was a very gospel kind of thing to do that was you know his gift and profession was dentistry, and so he tried to bring that to people who couldn't afford it. Uh, and I later learned after he died that, you know, when people couldn't pay, he'd let them pay a dollar a week for a while. He wouldn't wow. sort of, uh, you know. And, and I joked that he probably filled the teeth of half the nuns and priests in our town. You know, that was just uh, that was free. Um, you know, and my mom was a teacher and a librarian. She taught in both public and Catholic schools. Her Love was getting kids who didn't have books in their house to learn to love reading. And so for me, I looked at, you know, a lot of times people look at parents or at people in the religious community and say, they're a bunch of hypocrites, they say one thing and do another. And, you know, in my case, I was blessed by parents who actually seemed to have an organic connection uh, between what they did in their lives and what they believed. So this subject was always important to me. And then I, you know, I, I loved... Um, You know, a lot of the nuns I had back then in grade school, I always say my first lesson in civil rights was from a lovely young, a lovely teacher called Sister Genevieve, (laughs) who in this uh, town of our harsh nasal New England accents had this lovely southern accent. Turned (laughs) out she had been kicked out of a parish in the south during the sort of deep years of segregation because she had organized a biracial first communion service. Wow and uh you know she believed correctly that jesus looked upon uh people of all races and classes with love and so there she was teaching us kids up in fall river massachusetts and there were people like that in my life and then finally you know in high school i had uh, benedictines not jesuits i always love to say around here that it's nice that jesuits take time Occasionally, will listen to somebody educated by Benedictines. <laughs> um, and this was a really seriously intellectual lot of monks uh, who thought very hard about complicated issues. But the uh, prior of the monastery, it's now an Abbey, um, uh, wrote a book that was before the 60s called Zen Catholicism. Hmm. And it sounds like a very 60s book, but this was an older guy who had been in very serious dialogue with Buddhist monks all his life, the way Thomas Merton mm-hmm. uh, had been. So, you know, for all these reasons, and then in college, I took classes in the Divinity School because this topic wouldn't leave me. Um, you know, I always joke that I might make an FBO, an excellent atheist, but I'm haunted by <laughs> God and it's just, he's not going to
1: disappear. Take it away. Uh,
2: and that's okay with me. Um, so, you know, that that's sort of the background of this. And then in my journalistic life, I've, uh, it's also a topic that I've always been drawn to, and I was really fortunate to get to cover the Vatican for the New York Times when Pope John Paul was kind of near the height of his powers from um, 1984 to 86. So I got to travel the world thanks to John Paul, and it was a very interesting time because it was the debate over liberation theology and the uh, connection between, um, you know, sort of Catholic faith and social justice. Cardinal Ratzinger was head of the now, then later, Pope Benedict was head of the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith. So a lot of these issues that I've been thinking about all my life um, were at the forefront. And just one other thing I'll say for the yeah. benefit of students, you know, students often ask, you know, well, what's a useful thing to take if you want to do politics or journalism or something in this sphere? And I always say that the most useful course I took in college professionally was the most unlikely course on my college transcript, which was a course called Eschatology and Politics. <laughs> you know, eschatology for folks out there as the final things, mm-hmm. sort of the book of Revelation, um, taught by a very progressive and wonderful teacher called Harvey Cox. Um, and in that class we read a lot of the liberation theologians in what was then a form of printing that you guys are totally unfamiliar with, called mimeograph. Uh, and, um, you know, later I found myself, not that long later, like about 11 years later or 12 years later, I found myself in the Vatican. A lot of the people Harvey had us read were the people who were being criticized by the Vatican. So, this proved to be, the most unlikely course on my transcript proved to be one of the most useful. So. That's the typical commencement day speech. Follow your
1: loves. (laughs) (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. And you actually provided another perfect segue into uh, the next question. Uh, So you mentioned eschatology,
0: the end of things. Let's talk about the 2016 campaign. Yes, the
1: end of things. (laughs) You like (laughs) that one, right, Christian? Uh,
0: So uh... I should preface this this question with, um, this is a conversation when Aaron and I were prepping this podcast that got us like 30 minutes off the rails. Because we just... We had a very significant debate over um, the answer to this next question. So we won't we won't tell you our personal opinions on it yet. Um, You'll we've... have to let on before we. Finish. <laughs> we will, and maybe it'll be in our final papers. But <laughs> it'll come out. <laughs> but um, it is something that we spent quite a while conversing about, and we're really curious to get your opinion on it.
1: So I mean, the question, simply put, uh, is was religion uh, a, was it a religion a significant factor in 2016, or was it not a religion? of uh, a significant factor in relation to its influence in previous years.
2: See, I feel like giving the classic politicians answer yes and no, mm-hmm. uh, because I think they're both true uh, in different ways. Good to hear, good to hear from, okay. uh, from <laughs> our debate. So the, uh, you could write anything you want in your papers. Um, the On the yes side, um, it is very clear that, in the first instance, um, Donald Trump won a larger share of the white evangelical vote, not a lot, but by a little, um, than uh, anybody has in, uh, you know, on record. You know, he, he got a higher share than Mitt Romney did in 2012, a higher share than John McCain did, and I believe a higher share um, than George W. Bush did in his uh, races. Um, What does that tell us? Well, on the religion side, if you, you know, many evangelicals said um, our votes for Trump were there because um, we cared passionately about who he was going to put on the Supreme Court, because we care passionately about the right to life, about attitudes toward gay marriage. Uh, And so while we had many doubts about Trump and how he lived his life um, these issues were central to us, and that's why we voted for him. Um, so that's on the religion side, and that clearly played a role. And then at the same time, you know, every election we talk about religion and politics as if the religious right is the only part of it. You also saw on the progressive side um, a, the uh, extremely important role, which we see election after election, of the African American Church Uh, which I think was very important Hillary Clinton in the primaries, um, and she, particularly in South Carolina, uh, but also uh, during the campaign, spent an awful lot of time uh, with uh, uh, people in the African-American church, visiting African-American churches. Um, And they were central to turnout voter registration um, and people who, uh, people like, well, there's no one like, but someone who's representative and extraordinary figure, Reverend William Barber, Mm -hmm. uh, down in North Carolina, head of the NAACP, organized what he called Moral Mondays. Um, He really turned around politics in that state, I think, in a very important way. And you're seeing that's a particularly powerful brand of, for lack of a better term, he doesn't use left-right terminology, but we'll call it progressive Christianity um, or progressive incarnations of Christianity. Um, That was very important, too. So that's on the one side. On the other side, I think there is reason to uh, think that religion played a much smaller role in this election, Um, partly because if you look at people's religious affiliations and how they voted, um, other factors mattered far more than their religious affiliation. Thus, among Catholics, white Catholics voted more or less the way other white Americans did, uh, which was you know a majority for Trump, um, Latino Catholics voted more or less the way other Latinos did, which is an overwhelming majority uh, against Trump. Um, and so while you know somebody like me thinks the Catholic social thought is very important to the tradition, um, it's not clear. Um, you know it, it can't just be the case that it affected the Latinos far more than whites, although maybe it did. Um, there are other things going on there. Similarly. Um, you saw some really disturbing signs of people conforming their views, even on moral issues, to their presidential preference. Um, Thus a uh, very revealing question asked in a poll by PRRI, and I'll garble it a little here, people can look up the exact wording, (laughs) Um, but, um, you know, does a candidate's personal behavior affect how he or she will behave in office? Just three years ago, Um, white evangelical Christians overwhelmingly said yes. And you had something like a 30-some, 40-some point swing um, in this question. You can look it up and tell people the exact number at the end of the podcast if you don't mind. (laughs) Um, Where they said, well now it didn't matter anymore. They switched their views. White evangelicals did more than anyone else. That leads you to believe that people are actually kind of shifting, adjusting their moral views to suit the candidate they've chosen to pick. And then the last thing is that there clearly was a role of people's racial and attitudes and attitudes toward immigration that moved um, voters on both sides, but particularly voters who voted for Trump. Uh, So in the end, religion remains important to the discussion. It was certainly important to Um, some voters on both sides uh, of this election, on all sides if you want to think of third party, Um, but there were ways in which I saw it as diminishing in its importance uh, in 2016 as well. And as you know from being in the class, it's been one of the nagging questions that I've been asking myself and you all as we've gone through, which is, you know, are we at a time where we say religion matters, but it actually matters less than those of us who care about it and are interested in it might claim? Um, And I'm still struggling with that question myself.
0: I think uh, you gave a very diplomatic answer to that question. (laughs) Well, it Uh,
2: wasn't designed to be diplomatic. It was designed to say, um, you know, there are some questions on which there is evidence on both sides. And I was trying to lay out, Um, you know, the answer. If you ask me straight up, um, do I think that the role of religion was less than people often claim for it in this election? I think I would answer yes to that. Uh, But again, I think the answer is very complicated. And Mm -hmm. I think it's You know, it's important to take seriously what people actually say, not just what social scientists or journalists (laughs) impose on what they say. And there are clearly some Trump voters out there who are religious conservatives who would make a a case which they believe is true to their hearts and and commitments that says, no, my religion really did matter uh, here. Um, But, you know, I think then the... The uh, those uh, evil journalists or social scientists have a right to uh, kind of unpack that, and that's true of liberals too. I mean, you know, I'm you know I'm a liberal, and um, you know, we are also quite capable of conforming, um, you know, our religious views to political choices, and we claim that religion leads to those choices. But I think we always, in conscience, have to ask ourselves, you know, which comes first, which way does the arrow go, and it's complicated.
0: And I think. The, the reason that this question is so complicated is that, you know, in, in a perfect world, voters go into a ballot box and have like, you know, a one, two, three priority, you know, they vote on immigration, they vote on, you know, uh, the economy, they vote on, you know, other things, but religion is such an intersectional part of that. And, you know, religion isn't just like a priority one, priority two, priority three conversation because it affects how you view every single part of your priority list. Well,
2: And it's also, that's exactly right. And it's also true that religion in a pluralistic society um, is, uh, um, is part of people's identities, but that people's identities are formed out of a series of overlapping commitments. So what your religious faith is and teaches you overlaps with your ethnic and racial background, overlaps with where you live, uh, it overla- these are overlapping commitments and so kind of it's in some cases useful to disentangle them <laughs> to try to figure out what's most important. You know, for example, southern whites are more conservative on the whole than whites in other parts of the country. Voting in the South is more racialized uh, than it is in other parts of the country. That's just true when you look at mm-hmm. survey data. But in the actual lived life of people um, they don't make these sort of social scientific distinctions mm-hmm. and so I think it's you know sort of trying to figure out the relationship between identity and voting decisions or all kinds of other decisions is complicated and again you've got to try to be both analytical and to respect the integrity of people struggling with these various mm-hmm. identities.
1: Sure. And I think that's a fantastic point about identities because something else that we've been wondering, and we talked about this at length in your class, is are we seeing a trend of people becoming less and less religious? And that's both in terms of intensity and in terms of scale. Like, are less people actively you know, attending church and, and practicing their religions? And I know we haven't quite been able to tell if the millennial generation will come back to Christianity, as some data would suggest, previous generations start out a little less affiliated than it strengthens over time. But do you think that not having that strong faith background that the millennial generation, um, who affiliates with nuns might, might be lacking, do you think that will affect the way in which they vote, the morals they grew up with? Well, I think it already is.
2: I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a simple fact that this generation is less religiously affiliated than any other younger generation in history, and as we've talked about in class, it's very important to say that younger people historically tend to be a little less affiliated with religion than older folks, um, partly because a lot of older folks come back, um, uh, you know, for multiple reasons, some of which have having you know, uh, some of which have to do with how people raise children, and they figure their kids raised in a religious tradition will mm-hmm. at least have some kind of moral standard to. Sort of, and they can rebel against it. They can sort of ponder it. They can accept some of it, but it's there. What's different is compared to cohorts uh, of this age, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, your generation is far more religiously unaffiliated. Um, That's a huge sociological deal, um, and um, it affects your views on a lot of things. Your generation as a whole, is also the most progressive generation to come along since the greatest generation, since the New Deal generation. And uh, I suspect that in this case, there is some linkage between uh, the decline in religious affiliation and the liberalism of this generation, particularly because it tends to be social liberalism. Um, you know, I talked to my conservative religious friends a lot about this question and, you know, particularly, you know, in the Catholic Church where um, I sort of argued my conservative friends, you should, no one should welcome uh, Pope Francis's papacy more than people who care about the future of the Catholic Church, whether you are liberal or conservative, because... Pope Francis is disentangling Catholicism a bit from this idea that you have to be a really staunch social conservative to be Catholic and he's reminding people of the larger tradition that this church is about the poor it's about uh, human rights it's about social justice which are much more attractive to younger people many of whom are leaving Um, because they are uneasy or impatient with, or in some cases angry about, uh, what the church says about gay rights and gay marriage, or in some cases abortion. Again, I bracket that as a more complicated issue. and certainly about the role of women in the church. Um, uh, But I I do think that there is something um, undeniably different about your generation on the religious dimension. And therefore, even if, you do come back to some degree to religion later in life. You start out as such a high base of disaffiliation um, that it's not likely to come back to where other generations are now. And B, there is such a high rate of religious disaffiliation that people are finding alternative ways of um, meeting, if you will, the functions of religion. Um, You know, there are people out there you can find who conduct secular wedding services that look very much like religious services in the sense that they take marriage very seriously. Hmm. But there is no mention of God. There is no mention of a religious tradition. Uh, It's much more about a promise between two people. So that this disaffiliation is leading to the creation of non-religious institutions trying to fulfill what we're Traditionally seen as religious roles, so I, I think this is one of the biggest stories in the socio- sociology of American religion of the moment.
0: So is this um, is the fact that you know America, it, at least in the millennial generation, getting uh, you know less less and less religious? You know, we're the voters of the future as well. Um, so is this you know does this does the fact that a lot of Americans are less religious does that? Hurt any one party? Does it hurt both parties? You know who wins um, in electoral politics when uh, America becomes less and less religious.
2: Well, the overall cast of the politics of your generation is bad news for uh, the Republicans over the long run. I think you know if you talk quietly to a lot of Republicans, they know that. Hmm. Um, you know Trump. You know Trump did carry. Um, white millennials but only by a very narrow margin and one of the important facts about your generation is it's also far more diverse than older generations so that there's some of what we see as generational characteristics are in fact the difference between overwhelmingly white older generations and much more racially and ethnically diverse younger generations but even within that um, you know white Millennials were far more resistant to Trump uh, than older whites uh, were uh, so I think the religious disaffiliation is part of that but it's only part of um, a larger phenomenon of a relatively progressive generation that poses a real challenge to the republicans I mean Trump did lose the popular vote uh, 11 people 11 million more people voted for candidates other than Trump right. uh, in this election um, you know it's uh, you could you know, uh, cast this as a, a comment of a hopeful liberal, but I think <laughs> it would hold up to analysis. There aren't many majorities left in the Trump coalition. And, it, and as it was, it wasn't a majority. Um, but there aren't many victories left in the Trump coalition. Now, the wording of the Electoral College means that more older, more traditional voters will matter more because Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania will continue to matter right. uh, quite a lot. Um, But the future is almost certainly going to be more progressive than the present, unless you guys go through an extraordinary conversion in the next uh, five to ten years. And the evidence so far is the Trump presidency is actually turning your generation off even more to republicanism and conservatism and activating um, many younger people into politics on the progressive side. Um, but we will, you know, we'll uh, we'll see how this works out
1: in a, in a decade. So I wonder if that is is a bit of a function of how the parties have gone about framing religion, at least the way in which they talk about it, right? At, at least from our perception, it seems like on the progressive side, on the on the liberal side there's a lot of use of, um, for lack of a better term, social justice warrior like language, right? So going back to the gospels, going back for you know, caring for creation, stewards in the environment, that sort of language and, and thought process, the whole Catholic social thought uh, I- ideology as being you know, justifications for democratic party platforms, whereas on the right, it's a lot more about protecting our religious beliefs and religious conservatism and, you know, who is the government to tell us how you know we can express our religion? Do, do you think that's a function of of how it's being framed, and one is just more popular now with this new generation, or or do you think there's just like a a disconnect there?
2: Well, two things. One is that difference reflects uh, the issues that each are paramount uh, for each side, and conservatives sense that they are, broadly speaking, losing the culture wars. Um, Not only has the Supreme Court made gay marriage the law of the land, But public opinion is shifting rapidly in favor of gay marriage. It is, um, you know, it's not a unanimous position in your generation, but it's overwhelming, even among many of your very conservative cohorts, Mm -hmm. um, you know, don't see a problem with gay marriage. So there is a sense um, among older religious conservatives that they're losing the culture, if I can put it that way, um, and they're looking for protections against these trends wherever... They can find them, whereas um, religious progressives are, um, uh, you know, are where they have been actually for a long time. You know, you can go all the way back to civil rights and to the labor. You know, the the engagement of religious groups with the labor movement. Um, you know, they are arguing for a the primacy, if you will, of social justice concerns, um, and that's uh, you know that's a fairly consistent position on the religious left. Um, You know, everybody can look at both sides as being opportunistic, and there is opportunism here. You know, you hear, um, you know, each side quotes the parts of Scripture they can for their purpose. I have always noticed it's a kind of giveaway that if somebody starts quoting either something like Matthew 25 in the New Testament or the prophets, Isaiah, (laughs) Amos, Micah, they're probably liberal. If they are quoting more the... uh, um, uh, you know, unless you are born again, the very personal conversion passages mm-hmm. of the New Testament or the law books of the Old Testament, they're more likely to be conservatives. Right. so that, that's the way it is. But um, I think there's something else, and we've talked about this a lot in class, um, which is there's a real problem on the progressive side, because I think the progressive side is, has a much uh, more difficult coalition management problem around religion than conservatives do, because progressives, the progressive coalition, in one way to put it, is that they include both the most religious people in the country who are, by many measures, African-Americans, and the least religious people in the country, (laughs) Um, secular progressives, atheists, agnostics, um, including many people who are hostile to religion and see it as a reactionary force, period. Um, And uh, we talked a lot in class about how um, the uh, Clinton campaign, um, you know, mishandled uh, religious issues in a sense by um, discouraging her uh, from being rather open about how important religion was in her life. Yeah. Um, and I always found the most, some of the most authentic speeches she gave uh, were when she spoke about her Methodism and her Christianity and how they led her to a concern for the poor, a concern for kids. Um, And I think there is going to be, there has already started to be, a big debate among Democrats where, um, you know, uh, more religious Democrats and Democrats who are just more sympathetic to religion, even if they're not religious themselves, say, wait a minute. Um, You know, we uh, we need some dialogue here because... Not all religion is reactionary, and not all religious Americans are reactionary. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were many people who might have been uh, nudged. I mean, when you have an election decided by as few votes as this one was in states like Pennsylvania, uh, not states like, specifically yeah. in the states Pennsylvania. of Pennsylvania, <laughs> uh, Michigan, and Wisconsin, um, I think you can make a case that some of those votes might have been shifted had they sort of understood that Hillary was a more complicated figure than a straw person created uh, by the other side and I think her religious faith really filled out some of that persona
1: right and I think that makes a lot of sense and just really quickly I want to follow up on that because uh, we talk you brought up two competing narratives right there's the idea of you know the Democrats having the most religious and the least religious uh, but we're seeing generationally more and more people are becoming less and less religious so, Should the Democrats be more reliant on that demographic as a winning strategy? So in this case, you know, Hillary's choice to not actively focus on religion was right for like four years from now and just a fluke in this election? Or do you think that that needs that dialogue needs to be reincorporated regardless of how the demographics are shifting?
2: Coalition politics is a wondrous and complicated thing. (laughs) And the... Um, there has long been this debate of if you only turn out our base, and you've had this on both sides of politics, Mm -hmm. uh, then we can overwhelm the other side with the people we already have or the people who are very committed to us. Uh, The other side says that it's rarely the case that the base alone can win an election uh, and that persuasion is important. Uh, The example I like to use because it's stuck in my head, is Wisconsin, where um, Barack Obama got 45% of the white working class vote in 2012 and won, and Hillary Clinton got 34% of the white working class vote in 2016 and lost, Wisconsin. Um, That the Obama coalition is indeed dependent on heavy turnout of various base groups, including obviously African Americans, Latinos, and young people, uh, and more liberal and secular professional people. Um, But it never worked without that critical component of people who are not seen as automatic members of that base. Um, And so it is with religion as it is with other issues um, that if a particular coalition is seen as hostile uh, to another part of the country, um, you're going to ignite turnout on that other side against you and you're also going to deepen hostility against you. Republicans have this problem with Latinos, Mm. uh, where the signals they send are such that even John McCain in 2008, who was very sympathetic to Latinos, very sympathetic to immigration reform, lost votes among Latinos because they sensed the whole Republican party was hostile uh, to them. Um, Similarly, I think with older religious voters, if the Democrats set themselves up as a deeply hostile party, mm. they're going to lose votes that they could get. And that, you know, I say Democrats as a stand in for progressives. And that, um, you know, Martin Luther King is a hero of many of us for many reasons. But I think one of them is when you go back to the language of civil rights Christianity, um, it was a language that spoke to both the religious and the secular about moral obligation. and. King always talked about two things. He talked about um, the words of the prophets and the gospels, but he also talked about the words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And he showed how when it came to civil rights and social justice, these complemented each other. (laughs) I think King is a very good example of somebody who can speak very strongly from a religious base, uh, who nonetheless can communicate extremely well with secular people. I think Barack Obama at moments did that uh, very well, uh, mm. too. And I think there are other figures. Bill Clinton actually was quite good at this. Uh, and Hillary Clinton, when she did it, <laughs> was uh, good at this, could have been good at this uh, in the campaign.
0: I think uh, someone else, too, uh, I think of in 2016 as well, who did a lot of that was Senator Tim Kaine, you know, the vice presidential nominee, right. who uh, is an interesting case study for Democrats because he's personally anti abortion but votes uh, with the pro choice caucus. Uh, He's also
2: personally against the death penalty, but enforced it when he was governor of uh, hmm. of Virginia. And one of the fascinating things is when he came under attack in his campaign for being opposed to the death penalty, he made an ad which said, look, I want to enforce the law. But he also said the ad began, I'm against the death penalty because my faith teaches me that life, all life is sacred. And what was fascinating about that ad is his uh, political consultants focus group did and many conservatives didn't hear the part that he was opposed to death penalty, which might have offended them. Some conservatives heard it and said, gee, he's religious, he must, that must mean he's not a liberal, uh, which is really fascinating. Uh, so yes, he's somebody who's always understood this. Again, um, you wonder if Tim Kaine could have uh, talked about this mm-hmm. more than he did in the campaign. I think the Clinton campaign really thought that they could win with a brand new secular coalition Uh, and I think that was a mistake.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, I guess my question following up on that would be, do you see Tim Kaine as the mold for the new kind of Democrat that can speak to faith, you know, has personal convictions informed by faith, but is willing to uh, be part of that broader uh, progressive coalition?
2: Um, I think there are a lot of different models of this, And, and indeed, I think there are secular politicians, more secular politicians uh, who can uh, speak to religious people. One of the things that Bernie Sanders did in his campaign that most excited me is when he visited Liberty University, mm-hmm. and Bernie Sanders is Jewish and a secular Jew at that, and very open about it, yeah. um, but he talked about social justice to this group of very conservative Christians, most of whom were not going to vote for him, but he showed a respect for their scripture, for their beliefs, uh, he challenged them to live up to their own uh, set of beliefs. So I don't think there's a single model for this. Um, you know, one of the nicest things, I've told this story a number of times since the campaign because it sort of personally moved me. Um, I was on a panel with David Brooks at uh, Washington University before one of the debates. And in the course of the panel, I said that if I had a baseball hat, my baseball hat would be. I would say make America empathetic again, <laughs> uh, and I think we have just an enormous empathy gap in our country, uh, and uh, that um, you know it's and and it's across the board. It's the difficulty that people on opposite sides of politics can have empathizing with each with each other. It's a difficulty we have across racial lines in empathizing uh, with each other, and. Um, this lovely man in the audience sent me a note saying, um, you know, I love that line and I'm making two hats and I'm going to send them to you. And one day in my mail showed up a hat that no said, make America empathetic again, which is not one of my favorite possessions. And my I son love said, you know, I love that hat, dad, but you can't wear it because he made it as too perfect a replica of yeah. the Trump hat from a distance. People won't know what it actually says. But I think that, um... Uh, in this is one sphere where we really need more um, empathy uh, than we have, that religious people should certainly acknowledge what they know from their own experience, which is you sure don't have to be religious to be a moral person, hmm. uh, and that there have been plenty of very moral people who haven't been religious and plenty of religious people who haven't always been moral, uh, but that needs to be on the other side, that religious people need to acknowledge that, and that we need... Um, a lot more um, sort of respect, if you will, along these lines. Now it's easy for me to sit in this office here in Georgetown and preach that, and it's hard to actualize. Um, but it is one of the reasons I teach my course is because I, I like students to understand the role of religion in our politics, but also to understand the diversity of religion uh, in our country. Uh, and the fact that there are differences within traditions, mm-hmm. uh, mm. and um, you know, I would, I'd like to, if uh, if I do worse than having people remember or make America empathetic again, if that's all I do, <laughs> I think that would be at least marginally helpful to things.
0: I think that's a
1: great way to, to start closing things down and yeah. we really appreciate you taking your time. Uh, we just have one last thing that we do here and it's called lightning round. So we're gonna ask you four quick questions and just say the first thing that comes to
0: your mind, all right? And the good news about these questions is these questions do probably have a right or a wrong answer unlike the questions we've <laughs> yeah. asked you so far.
1: <laughs> great, so first one,
0: what's your favorite column you've ever
1: written? Um, Probably one about, uh, uh, can I name two
2: because they're had, uh um, probably, what about my dad? What about my mom? And the most recent column, the most my favorite column in recent times was a column I wrote about my mother-in-law who died right. earlier this year, who was one of my heroes. There were political columns I could name, but in some ways those personal columns, um, you know, just to go to the one about my dad, and, and I'm going to wreck the lightning round. My <laughs> okay. dad died in 1968, the same year Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King died. Mm-hmm. and I always said, that, uh, you know, in my view, three great Americans died in 1968. And so 30 years after, I just decided, I'm gonna write about my dad. And I got the most wonderful response. And the beauty of those kind of columns is that people who hate everything you write for political <laughs> reasons can actually discover we can relate to each other on a personal level, even if we disagree on everything. And the column I wrote on my wife's mom was wonderful because all the comments came across the board, people related to this personal story. So it tells me I should probably do less politics than I do more columns <laughs> like that. Um,
0: by virtue of being on this podcast, uh, our audience doesn't understand that we are in a room that is wall-to-wall with books. Um, more books than I've seen in any you know professor's <laughs> office, so this is interesting. Um, if you could pick one book that's your favorite in this room, what would it be?
2: Well, my favorite might not be in this room. It might be uh, at home. Um, I would say... Uh, I named two books that were particularly important to me, although I might have a completely different answer if I thought about it five minutes <laughs> after. Uh, probably the book that was most important to my own political views and how they changed was a book by William Luchtenberg, a historian called Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal. Hmm. And when I read that in a high school history class, it gave me a deep love of the New Deal. A book that deep changed... The, the, uh, the second book that fundamentally changed my way of looking at the world is um, a book of Martin Luther King's sermons called Strength to Love. And I read that in a high school. I read that for a book report. It was my choice in a high school religion class. <laughs> and that was deeply important to me. I may be writing about that uh, soon. And then... Everything that the philosopher Michael Walzer has written uh, because he is sort of in
1: some ways my intellectual lodestar. Great. Last question. Totally separate from religion and politics, if you could teach one class here at Georgetown, what would it be?
2: Besides this?
1: Yeah, besides the one we're in.
2: A class that I will probably never teach because it would require me to do about a year and a half or two years of reading. I've always wanted to teach a course called Modern Prophets Mm -hmm. where I wanted to have... Uh, students read um, Abraham Heschel, uh, John Courtney Murray, uh, Martin Luther um, King um, wh- whom I le- oh, and Reinhold Niebuhr. Okay. Uh, and uh, that's a course that's in the back of my head that maybe I will teach someday. <laughs> I might ask somebody like Josh Mitchell who's a great uh, Niebuhr expert to help me on it. I might ask a lot of people to help <laughs> me on it, but I think representing different traditions um, Heschel, King, Murray and Niebuhr uh, are people A, whom are very important to me but also I think so vital to understanding the larger American political as well as the American religious tradition
1: Great, well professor. thanks so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us I know we cut into your office hours a bit but we really appreciate the uh, no, so, Well you're a student <laughs> so you have a right to office <laughs> can, right? Right? Thank you right. so much professor. Thanks. That was E.J. Dion.
0: Wow, E.J. Dion, he's just so smart. I know. I could literally listen. I okay. So like when he was talking about what other classes he would take, I was literally just thinking in my head, can you please teach those? Like oh I would, God. I would love to take. Modern Prophets. that'd be great. I know. Um, good news is Professor Dion's not going away. He's still going to be on campus. We can still read all of his work. His office, by the way, absolutely beautiful. Oh my God, it's stunning. As Prime as, location. He's got like a secret office in Old North. You'd never know it was you, there. It it doesn't exist. It took me like I've been on <laughs> I've been on this campus for like two semesters. Uh, or two years, excuse me, two semesters. Uh, I've been on this campus for two years, and I had no clue that it was there. I got lost, and I do not get lost on this campus anymore. Um, and it was, a, it was a very weird thing to find, but it's a beautiful view. And literally, as I said earlier, wall-to-wall with books. Also, wall-to-wall with, like, weird posters that I don't really understand of, like, political campaigns from, like, not America. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a fascinating conversation, I feel like, we had with them. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it, it answered a lot of questions that Chris and I struggle with and argue about, Um, constantly it also gave us some good material for our final papers yep so we should get writing on this yeah hmm, yeah anyway
1: (laughs) (laughs) follow our struggles writing these final papers uh you can follow christian and i uh both our handles get retweeted fairly often through the account thank you kendall um and you can also follow us at fly on the wall pod that's on twitter instagram and facebook uh or shoot us an email pod fly on the wall podcast at gmail.com we want to hear from you Uh, And if you want to get involved with the podcast in any way, should just note, we love uh, newcomers. We love new ideas.
0: I've got good news for you folks. Um, I know that you're all thinking, thank God they're going to stop this podcast when the summer starts. Mm -hmm. Um, The good news is we still have a couple of episodes that we're going to be pumping out in the next couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. Uh, So this is not our final episode of the semester, despite the fact that um, you guys all think it is. Um, So... Fake news. <laughs> uh, definitely check us out next week. Like I said, we're still gonna have a couple of more episodes of this uh this great semester. Uh yeah, thanks
1: guys. Talk to you later.
0: Wait, didn't we have a good idea for Crazy After? We did, and we lost it. I feel like that happens to us fairly frequently is yeah. we'll have a good idea. Yeah. And then we'll lose it. I mean, but like how many people actually listen to our crazy after? I think we should
1: take a poll. Hey, if you're still listening to this, like tweet like DM us or something like I kind of want to is there a way we can like assess this no there's really not